So let's begin with prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship. All we have to do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with sins that we commit after salvation is to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. It's a very simple process and it's amazing how many people have a hard time with it. Especially if they commit some sin that really shocks or offends them, something that offends someone else. They just think that there's nothing that, that, uh, nothing that they can do to get God to forgive them. Yet the issue is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that we will ever commit 2,000 years ago. There is no sin that you or I can commit that will ever surprise God. God has known about it for hundreds of millions of years, on into eternity. There never was a time when God did not know about every single sin that we would commit. So all we have to do is acknowledge or admit it to God, and at that instant, we are forgiven. So let's begin with silent prayer for a few minutes to make sure that we have admitted, acknowledged our sins to God the Father, and then we'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And your word is our sole guide. You have told us that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, and it is found in your word. So now as we open the word of truth this evening, we pray that you would clarify what you have said, that we might be able to understand it and apply these things in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we continue studying about the spiritual life and how it is advanced through testing and trials. We're in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it, gives, it brings forth death. Okay, maybe we'll get that far this evening. Last Wednesday night, we stopped about halfway through verse 12 on the doctrine of crowns. There we saw that happy is the believer who perseveres, that is, is persistent in, app, in application of doctrine when they are undergoing tests. They don't bail out. The temptation in any test is to do it one of two ways. Every time we get into a situation that is a test where we have an op- opportunity to use our volition, either positive, use divine viewpoint, and apply doctrine through one of the ten stress busters, or to reject doctrine and try to solve the problem on our own through human viewpoint, which is tantamount to sin nature control of the soul. We handle it through divine viewpoint, then we block stress, and the outside adversity is not converted into stress in the soul. If we choose the human viewpoint route with sin nature control, then the outside adversity is converted to stress in the soul, which, unless it's dealt with through confession of sin, God's grace, recovery procedure, 
then the results can ultimately lead to the believer that is fragmented and double-minded and neurotic and psychotic. But here in verse 12, we're talking about the believer who is pursuing maturity. The principle is found in verses 2 through 4 of the beginning of this chapter. Count it all joy. There we have that theme of happiness again. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests, knowing, because you know, that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance produce maturity, that you may be spiritually mature and complete in all things, lacking in nothing. Corrected translation. Verse 12 says that happy is the man who perseveres. Why? From what we learn in verses 3 and 4, the one who perseveres or persists, advances in his spiritual life, grows towards spiritual maturity, and as you see the Word of God applied in your life, you see the benefits of that spiritual growth as you are strengthened and grow uh, in your understanding of the Lord. He will receive the crown of life. This is the ultimate goal. It's often said when you begin a project, you must begin with the end in mind. The end that God has in mind for the believer is down here at the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek term used is the Bema seat. The Bema was the place of judgment, usually found near the marketplace in a Greek village or town, and that is where all local judicial functions took place. The judgment seat of Christ is the believer's evaluation point. This is where we get our spiritual evaluation report after we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. At the judgment seat of Christ, every believer undergoes evaluation. This is not evaluation for eternal salvation. Every believer is secure in eternal salvation from the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. The issue in salvation is crystal clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not an issue of baptism. It's not an issue of good works. It's not an issue of church attendance. It's not an issue of giving up certain sins or, or uh, following a certain lifestyle. The issue is belief on Christ alone, faith alone in Christ alone. The judgment seat of Christ is to evaluate how you perform as a believer from the point of salvation till you go to be home with the Lord. The, God's basic plan for every believer can be divided into three phases. Phase one is salvation, justification. It's interesting, the Greek word is sozo, S-O-Z-O, from which we get a word like soteriology. The the verb form is sozo, the noun is soter, savior. S-O-Z-O means to save, rescue, deliver. And you always have to ask the passage where you read this word, what's the context? What are we being saved from? Are we being saved from the penalty of sin, which is phase one salvation, also known as justification? Are we being saved from the penalty of sin? Are we being saved from phase two, from the power of sin, or phase three, from the presence of sin. 
Phase one is when you as an individual come to a recognition that you need to be saved and be made, your relationship with God needs to be made right, and that is done by faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins when He died on the cross as our substitute. That saves us from the penalty. That means that no longer is our eternal destiny the lake of fire. That's the penalty of sin. Eternity in the lake of fire. Phase two, which is phase two salvation, is salvation from the power of sin. At the moment of salvation, we still had the same old sin nature that we had before we're saved. It has the same trends, the same lust patterns. Maybe now because there's a new dynamic at force, because of spiritual warfare, the intensification of the angelic conflict, you might uh, even want to sin in, in, in totally new ways. You may have temptations that were never temptations before that are now temptations for you. You may ha- discover lust patterns in your soul that you never knew you had before. A whole new level of struggle. But the spiritual life is the power over the sin nature to be free in our experience from the bondage to the sin nature. This is progressive. It is called progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. Sanctification has to do with being set apart to God in terms of service. Sanctification does not mean that we are made holy. We are declared holy by position in Christ at the moment we are saved. This is part of justification. At the moment of our salvation, God the Father imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And He looks at that righteousness and declares us to be just. And we are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, which means that God the Holy Spirit is used by Jesus Christ to identify us with Him, and we are placed in union with Jesus Christ forever and ever. We are one with Christ, so we are positionally holy or sanctified. But phase two, the spiritual life, is experience. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Some days we we see how we have... uh, We apply more doctrine, so we have victory over the sin nature, and other days we don't. It's a progress. At the end of our lives, and we never know when that is, we are promoted and advanced to heaven, where we are absent from the body. Our soul is instantly separated from our physical body. The soul does not disappear. The soul does not cease existence. The soul does not go to sleep. None of those things happen. For the believer, the instant you are separated from your physical body, you are in heaven face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is called glorification. That's one theological term, it's glorification. And it is um, the time when we're absent of a sin nature and we no longer have the presence of sin. Sin will no longer be an issue. It is absolute or final sanctification where we are in the presence of God the Father, freed from all sin and absolutely set apart for His service for all eternity. Now, the issue is what takes place between phase one salvation at justification and phase three salvation at glorification. That's the issue at the Bema seat. The issue is what have you done in relationship to the mandate in Ephesians 4 to redeem the time. 
What have you done in terms of spiritual growth? That's going to be the issue. So we have our chart that lays this out in terms of a flow chart. The major issue in life is your volition right here in the middle of the chart. It's our volition, whether we are positive to doctrine or negative to doctrine. Every time we have a a situation in life that comes up, whether it's a minor situation as to how to deal with some some person who is uh, a mental midget and has somehow gotten behind the wheel of a car and they're in front of you and you're in a hurry, that may be one test of the doctrine in your soul. It's usually a test for me. And, uh, or it may be something more serious, such as having to deal with uh, the departure of a loved one to heaven, or something of that nature, something that is more serious. But every situation in life is an opportunity for us to apply doctrine. We can either be positive or negative. If we are positive and we are in fellowship with the Lord, filled by means of the Holy Spirit, then the result is divine good. It is what produces what the Bible calls eternal life. And it's not just a matter of unending existence, but it is a quality of life. As we learn doctrine and apply it in our lives, then we develop capacity for life and for happiness. It gives meaning and definition to our lives so that we understand how we fit into the overall scheme of things and how the issues in our life fit into the overall scheme of things. I don't know if you're a fan of working jigsaw puzzles. I'm not sure if they call them jigsaw puzzles in this part of the country or if they have another name for them. I've heard different names. But you get these puzzles, and they come in a big box, and they have a big picture on the front of the box, and sometimes they're very intricate, lots of colors and lots of details. Sometimes they're very abstract. And so that makes it even more difficult to put it together. And if you just have all these pieces laid out on the table, you may have thousands of pieces in some of these puzzles. And people take uh, months to put everything together and get it all right. But if you don't have that picture that gives you the idea of what it's all going to look like in terms of the finished product, then what you're left with, if all you had were all, was all these pieces and you had no clue what the picture was, And you would be like most people trying to live a spiritual life. You're out there trying to generate just from your own experience and in in the subjectivity of your own soul, you're trying to figure out what it's all about and what it looks like. And unfortunately, that's where most Christians are. They have no concept of this overall flow chart that I have on the overhead for you. They have no understanding of the dynamics of the spiritual life. They don't understand that the power of the spiritual life comes from two sources, the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. They don't understand how to obtain the filling of the Holy Spirit. In many, many churches, they identify the filling of the Holy Spirit with spiritual maturity. The more you grow, the more... And how they define growth is in terms of spiritual works. So if you're involved in teaching Sunday school, going out knocking on doors in evangelism, uh, if you're involved in, in working with Uh, the old folks in one way or working with the young marriage in another way or working in the nursery in another way, whatever it might be, the more you're involved in doing things, that is equivalent to spiritual growth. And so if you go out there and you do this, do this, and do that and get involved, then that's how you know if if you're filled with the Spirit, you're, you're growing. The more you do, the more mature you are and the more filled you are. That has nothing to do 
with what the Bible actually says. It's just a distortion that ultimately reduces the spiritual life to morality. And there's nothing more devastating to true biblical spirituality than to reduce spirituality to morality. Now, that's not saying that morality and spirituality are contradictory. I'm not saying that. But morality is for every member of the human race, believer and unbeliever alike. Morality is part of divine establishment truth. Morality is what is essential if you are going to have a stable civilization. But morality is not the spiritual life. Anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. The spiritual life in the church age is uniquely a product of, the, of God the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, we are commanded to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, we are commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Anytime you have a command, that means you can either fulfill it or not fulfill it. You can either be in obedience to that command or not in obedience to that command. Maturity is a sliding scale. It's relative. It depends on other factors. You may be more or less filled. But a specific mandate to be filled, to do something, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. There's no halfway. And that's part of the problem with the way some people understand that and they equate it to morality. And then you have to ask the question, how do you tell the difference between performing good works, which are the product which is energized by the sin nature, and good works which are the result of the sin nature, I mean, which are produced by God the Holy Spirit. How do you tell the difference? If you reduce the spiritual life to morality, you have no criteria for distinguishing between human good, which is the product of the sin nature, and divine good, which is the product of God the Holy Spirit. So that becomes a fundamental issue. You have to know how, what, what is the source of the spiritual life. And the source of the spiritual life is God the Holy Spirit. So if you are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, then you are producing in this area. There's persistence in the midst of trials. And so you are advancing from one stage to the next and towards spiritual maturity. If, on the other hand, you reject the divine solution, and you try to solve your problems through drugs, through alcohol, through uh, psychology, through leaning on somebody else, through any kind of gimmick there is out there, and there are all kinds of alternative solutions to try to solve the problems in your life. If you're trying to solve the adversity in your life through human viewpoint techniques, then you will never advance in the spiritual life. You're under the control of the sin nature. You're converting all of this adversity into stress, and the result is that you're in maximum production of human good. You are in what the Bible calls temporal death, and you are going to come under divine discipline. Uh, Whatsoever a man reaps, this this he will also sow. There will be weakness and instability in your life that will increase uh, dramatically as the years go by. It results in spiritual regression and a hardened heart, and this cycle intensifies the longer you stay in that. The issues will only be made clear, or the final results will only be made clear at the Bema seat. And this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn with me there. 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now this is review for some of you. Maybe a little new to others of you. Some of you have been around a long time, and so this is fairly basic. I remember one time I taught this. I had been, in fact, I, had, I know I had taught it in a little more detail two or three times, and I had at one of my deacons at a former church come up to me, and he had never heard this before. I mean, it just slapped him right between the eyes. He had never heard anything like this. And I think it's very important. Very few people really understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Here we have a description of what takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. So he uses a metaphor of a builder, an architect. In fact, the Greek word for master builder is, the, is architectron, which is the root from which we get our English word architect. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. So he compares himself by, in the analogy to a, an architect who has designed a structure and is in the process of building it. He lays the foundation. The foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. The foundation is the gospel. The foundation is in your life is your response to the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, respond positively to that command and put your faith alone in Christ alone, then the foundation is laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. Verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of your spiritual life. Without Jesus Christ, there is no spiritual life. When you are born, you are born spiritually dead and physically alive. There is no spiritual life there. Spiritual life comes only at the moment of faith in Christ. At that moment, God the Holy Spirit creates in you a human spirit and imputes to it eternal life. We've been studying that on Sunday morning in our Galatians series. God the Father imputes to, in His justice, imputes to your human spirit simultaneously with its creation, His eternal life. Now you build. Now you nourish it. Now you develop it. Like a newborn babe, you are commanded to desire the sincere milk of the world. That's a mandate there. That verb desire is a command to to hunger for the Word, to desire it, just as you do at the end of a long day at work when you were so busy you didn't have time to eat lunch, and you get home and you're just ravenous, and even though supper is going to be ready in about 30 minutes, you don't uh, have time to wait. You just go straight to the cabinet and grab that bag of chips and the salsa or whatever your favorite thing is, or a candy bar or ice cream or whatever, and you just start eating down right away. That's that drive that you're supposed to have, your desire, the sincere milk of the Word. That is what nourishes your spiritual life. That is what uh, enables your spiritual life to develop uh, blood and muscle, so to speak, to grow and pursue spiritual maturity. It comes from the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds, how do you build upon that foundation? Well, that's the focus of our study. You learn the Word of God. You cannot apply what you do not know. And you cannot know 
where you do not take the time, the effort, and the concentration to learn. It's a steady, day-by-day, week-by-week process. It doesn't happen overnight. We live in a society that, that uh, looks to everything being accomplished instantly. We, we value instant gratification. We get hungry. If we don't have time to cook a good meal, then we'll go do something with fast food or we'll throw something in the microwave and it'll be done in 30 seconds or 5 minutes or something like that. And so we settle for all of these second-rate solutions. But you can't do that in the spiritual life. There's no quick fix in the spiritual life. It's a long, slow process that takes our entire life. And as we learn God's Word and it goes into our soul, the result is application. That's the process. That's the, the route. That's, those are the stages. First of all, we have to learn it. We have to go to Bible class. We have to sit in Bible class in uncomfortable pews. And we have to um, learn how to block that out and focus. We have to learn, we have to focus, and we have to concentrate on what is being taught. Second, we have to choose whether or not we believe it. At the moment we believe it, God the Holy Spirit converts it from gnosis, which is academic knowledge, into epinosis, which is usable knowledge that has been converted or metabolized into usable doctrine. And then we get another opportunity to uh, exercise our volition, that is when we hit the test, we get the opportunity to apply the doctrine that has been stored in our souls, to think about it, to use a little bit of our own personality, our own creativity, and our own initiative to apply doctrine to the situation. And when we do that, the result is that something is built. God the Holy Spirit begins to strengthen our soul and we, something is built. And through life we build something, which is the, our whole life. And as it's built, there's all sorts of production. Now sometimes we're not sure what our production is, but what we discover here is that there are six categories of production. If any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Those are the six categories. Now, sometimes people try to make a distinction between gold is this category of production and silver is this other category of production, and I think that's pushing the analogy beyond its limits. One thing you always have to be careful of when the Bible uses metaphors is that every metaphor, every analogy ultimately breaks down at some point. The analogy here is between two categories. Gold, silver, and precious stones cannot be destroyed by fire. They are purified by fire. The impure elements in gold, in silver, or in a precious stone are burned up and they're eliminated so that what is left is the pure gold, the pure silver, and the pure precious stone, the diamond, or whatever. Wood, hay, and straw, on the other hand, are completely consumed by fire, and there's nothing left but the ashes. That's the point of the analogy, is that the divine good of gold, silver, and precious stones are purified in the midst of the fire, whereas the human good of wood, hay, and straw is completely consumed. What we're told is that all of our lives, at the end of our life, we're going to have an edifice that's constructed 
that is made up of a conglomerate of divine good and human good. Even on our own, we cannot tell which is which. The only criteria we have in life to try to discern is the issue of the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then our production is divine good. When we're under the control of the sin nature, it's human good. But there are a lot of times when we're in reaction to God, we're we're operating on a guilt complex over our sin, and we're trying to uh, deal with that that, uh, guilt complex, and we're trying to impress God and other people with how holy we are, and we're convincing ourselves that we're filled with the Spirit, and we're operating on the sin nature. So there's a lot of self-deception going on with with relation to our arrogance. But there is a time when it is manifest. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident. Greek is phanerao, which means to make it manifest. Now, this is not sin. Notice what it says. The Greek word here is ergon. E-R-G-O-N, which is the word for works. It is not this word. Hamartia, which is the Greek word for sin. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, the issue there is not sin. God is not going to come up and say, okay, you, you did this, you did that, and He's not going to run out a list of sins and expose all your sins to everybody else that's there. Why? Those sins were paid for completely by Jesus Christ on the cross. When He died, before He died, He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. The, the payment for those sins was complete before He died physically. When He hung between heaven and earth, God the Father covered the earth in darkness during those three hours. Jesus Christ was separated from God the Father judicially in order to pay the penalty for our sins when they were imputed to Him. So the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is not hamartia. It's not sin. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is our works, our production. Is it from the sin nature in terms of human good, or is it from the filling of the Holy Spirit? Each man's work will be made manifest. It will become evident. It will be on display. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. In the analogy, it is taking your entire life's production, setting it up, building a fire under it, setting the whole thing ablaze, and what's left is the basis for reward, the gold, silver, or precious stone. For some people, there will be a large amount. It may not look like much when you begin to look at it, but then as that fire begins to burn away all of the dross, all of a sudden there will be an enormous pile of gold, silver, and precious stones. Other people, it may look wonderful. It's just painted gold. What's inside is nothing but wood, hay, and straw, and it will all be consumed. And we're told in verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. The believer with maximum production, if any man is in verse 14, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. So we are told that there are not only rewards, but there is loss of rewards. 
not loss of salvation. Paul said, I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Once you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what happens, you can't renounce, you can renounce Jesus, but He won't renounce you. You can become an atheist, but God is not going to quit being your father. You are in the family of God forever and ever, and you may lose all your rewards. You may go out under the sin unto death. You may have a miserable physical existence, and you will enter into heaven yet as through fire. But the believer who pursues spiritual maturity and learns doctrine and lets that infiltrate his soul and dominate his thinking so that there is maximum production in his life under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that believer is going to have all kinds of rewards when he arrives in heaven. He will will build capacity for life and happiness that will put him in good stead when he reaches heaven and will put him in a position to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's the ultimate goal, is who is going to rule and reign in the, in the Lord's kingdom. He is, right now, He is preparing the administrators of that kingdom, the rulers of that kingdom on planet Earth. We're in the management training seminar right now. From the moment you trust Christ as your Savior until the day you're di- you die, you're in a management training course. You're in a royalty training course. And some of you are going to fail and fail miserably, and you will not enter into the reigning aspect of the millennial kingdom or eternity. Others of you are going to uh, perform magnificently, and you will surprise everybody around you by the position that you have in the eternal kingdom. The issue is, ultimately, where are we going to be when we arrive in heaven? And that's what this chart is all about. At the judgment seat of Christ, you will be evaluated, not in terms of your salvation, but in terms of your spiritual life, what value there is, what production there has been under the filling of the Holy Spirit today. You will go on to rewards and receive your inheritance, or if you are a a failure in the spiritual life, there will be a loss of rewards. And temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. This is portrayed in a number of passages in the Gospels, that there will be misery for a short time because the Lord will be bringing discipline and you will realize how you have failed your Lord at that time. And then the Lord will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, for all those things will pass away and you will go on into heaven and yet you will have missed out on all that God has set aside and intended to give you And your blessings will remain contingent blessings for eternity, never realized blessings for eternity. The believer who is a success in the spiritual life realizes his contingent blessings for eternity, and they are his, and he will rule and reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever. Now, the metaphor that the Bible uses to speak about these rewards is the term crown. And these crowns were wreaths made out of different plants. Oak leaves or laurel leaves. 
Various different leaves were used, and there were two types of crowns, a Stephanos crown and a Diadema crown. The Diadem was a crown of royalty. The Stephanos crown is the crown that was given the, the victor, uh, the athletic victor, the military victor, or someone who had excelled in his civic responsibilities. We see a tremendous analogy to this in... 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, in, um, let me go to a passage here, 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games, this is an athletic analogy, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, that is, they, the human athlete, then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we believers do it to receive an imperishable wreath. Now, the Romans had many different crowns which they used as decorations in the military. They also gave crowns to winners of athletic competitions. For example, and just, just list a few here, there was the Corona Obsidianalis, sometimes also called the Corona Gramineo, which was a wreath of golden strands. It was the very highest decoration given to the military, like our um, uh, Medal of Honor, and it was given to those who had been victorious in victory and breaking a blockade or a, a siege or perhaps a tremendous uh, naval battle. A second uh, crown that the Romans gave was the Corona Civica, which was made of golden oak leaves and was given to a soldier who saved the life of another soldier in battle. The Corona Navalis was the highest decoration given in the Roman Navy for destroying an enemy fleet or perhaps to the first who boarded a ship and made it possible for them to, uh, to for everyone else to come over and, and take and to capture that ship. Uh, a fourth crown, Roman crown, was the Corona Muralis, and that was awarded to the first soldier who scaled the wall of a besieged city. Now there were a number of other Roman crowns, and that just gives you a taste of the various decorations that they passed out. But they were just oak leaf or laurel leaf crowns that they wore on their on their head. Uh, each crown included monetary reward, freedom from taxes, the children were educated at public expense, and a statue of the person was erected in the public square. That's all part of the athletic uh, competition. They didn't just get a gold medal like we have a gold medal or bronze medal or silver medal. They would be given just this wreath, but after that they had tremendous benefits. Wouldn't you just love to never have to pay taxes again for the rest of your life? So that would be the motivation for pursuing the, the athletic competition. So we started last week. We were going over the background for crowns and how important it was for them to dedicate themselves completely to the competition and to the training. The only freeborn Greeks were eligible to participate in the athletic contest. They began by entering into a rigorous 10-month schedule of training. They had to uh, abide by all of the rules for training, and they were watched so that if they were to uh, somehow not give it their best during morning calisthenics, then they would be disqualified and they would be out. They had a uh, rigid, if somewhat limited, diet, and if they violated that at any point, they would be disqualified from the games. Uh, the diet consisted of cheese, figs, and dried meats. All alcohol was forbidden and the athlete was restricted to the gymnasium area 
during those ten months. He couldn't go home, couldn't visit anyone else. If he did and was caught, then he was disqualified. This is the point that Paul is making there in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. That's the command to the believer. We are to run the race. The spiritual life is compared to a race. We are to run that race so as to win. That means that we need to abide by all of the rules. Of course, it's not like not like in the games competition. If we violate a rule, if we sin, we don't. We're not disqualified. We have First uh, John one nine to recover and keep moving, and that's the issue: is we have to keep moving. Now, what were some of these crowns that were given? Well, the first. It's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, is the crown of righteousness. This is not a crown that consists of righteousness. It's not an objective genitive in this case. It is a crown for righteousness for the believer who from phase 1 to phase 3 advanced experientially and demonstrated righteousness in his life under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in phase two, the issue is freedom from control of the sin nature. Freedom from control or the power of the sin nature. And the only way to have control of the sin nature, or freedom from control of the sin nature, is number one, through the use of 1 John 1, 9, confession so that we're forgiven and we're once again under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then two, applying doctrine, so the next time we're tempted or tested, instead of giving in to the sin nature, we resist and we apply doctrine instead, and we do not convert the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. So this crown of righteousness is for the believer who advances towards spiritual maturity and, and produces more and more righteousness, practical righteousness or experiential righteousness in their life. This is for the believer who is continually advancing. This, I don't think this is restricted to the believer who makes it, but this is to the believer who continues to advance towards spiritual maturity. The Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. This was at the end of his life. He was imprisoned in Rome, and he knew this time he would not get away, and he would be executed. I have kept the faith. That means that is the objective use of faith there. It is not the faith rest drill, but the faith, that which is believed, or Bible doctrine. He has maintained his faithfulness to doctrine. He never gave up. He never said doctrine doesn't work. He knew that doctrine did work and that was the only solution. That the divine solution was the only solution and he kept with it and he was persistent. He followed the principle of James 1. He persisted and endured in the midst of many, many trials. He says, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all, also to all who, love, who have loved His appearing. Now, what's happening in this verse? Here you are. This is the church age. Church age began at the cross. 
and extends down here until Jesus Christ returns. He does not return to the earth. He returns in the air. There we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with Him, in the, and so will be forever be with Him in the air. This is called the rapture. Now, we are either going to be raptured, at which time we do not go through physical death, or we will go through physical de- death and be absent from the body face to face with the Lord. That's what happened here with the Apostle Paul and may happen with, with us. But eventually, there will be a rapture generation that will not see death. But from the moment we're saved until the moment that we go to be with the Lord, we, from phase one to phase three, the issue is spiritual growth. And what motivates us is that we know that we are going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a moment of reckoning. There will be a moment of accountability. There will be a moment of evaluation. This is not an evaluation of shame. It's not based on sin. It's not like the evangelist who says that all your sins are going to be trotted out so that everybody sees what you do. That's uh, contrary to Scripture. Your sins were already paid for. The issue is production, whether it was done of divine good or human good. So... The future appearing of Christ is what is to motivate us back here in phase two to grow to spiritual maturity. So to the one who loves his appearing, that takes a certain amount of advance in the spiritual life. This is what I call a personal sense of eternal destiny. We have an understanding that everything that we do today in phase two determines where we will be in phase three. So we're going to conduct our lives today with the future in mind. We're not going to be like so many people who are so concerned with instant gratification that we have no concept of what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or the following year. We know that no matter how long we have here on planet Earth, that eventually we're going to have eternity with the Lord, and that's what matters. What matters here will fade and be forgotten, but what happens for eternity, what has value for eternity, Matters, So that's what Paul is referring to here. Those who loved his appearing, those who have advanced at least to this stage in the spiritual life where they have a personal sense of their eternal destiny and they look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ because they have no, they have nothing to fear. They have advanced in their spiritual life from spiritual infancy towards spiritual maturity and that means an increase in experiential righteousness so that they are no longer spending as much time out of fellowship as they were when they were first saved, and there is evidence in their life. And that is the basis for the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness is not based on uh, positional righteousness, which we all have at the moment of salvation, but on that righteousness which is produced under the filling of the Holy Spirit as a result of our progress in the spiritual life. Okay, that's the crown of righteousness, the first crown. Second crown is the crown of life. This is the one that's in our passage in James chapter 1. It's also found in Revelation 2.10, where we read, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Note that the devil is about to cast some of you in prison that you may be tested. That's certainly a test if you know that you may be arrested, put in prison, and maybe even martyred for your belief in Jesus Christ 
or at least go through torture for your faith, that you may be tested and you will have special persecution ten times. Keep on being faithful even until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now this crown of life is not eternal life. The believer already has eternal life from the moment that he is saved. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. And you can never lose it. So the crown of life is not talking about eternal life. What it is talking about is a quality of life and a capacity for life. So that tells us that there are different grades of life in eternity. Not just eternal life in terms of continuous existence without end, but the quality of that life when you're in heaven. That those believers who are failures, FBs, failure believers, are down here. They enter heaven so so as through fire. They have given up all of their rewards, all of their inheritance. They're going to be in heaven but they're, they're not going to experience all that they could. They're not going to have all the quality of life and the capacity of life in heaven that a mature believer up here is going to have. A mature believer up here has rewards, has inheritance, has, he rules and reigns with Christ, and is in a position of responsibility based on what happened during his life on earth. This mature believer up here has a tremendous capacity for where he is in heaven. He has a capacity for life and he has a quality to his eternal life that this believer will lack. Does that mean that this believer is miserable? No. It's just as someone may have a, an income or live on, a, on an income of $30,000, $40,000 a year and be very, very happy. Someone else may have an income of 5 or $6 million, or as we heard on the news this last week, they might have 5 or $6 billion. Amazing, we have people who are billionaires. And some, some of those, I think 65 of them lost it because it was all on paper with the drop in the, in the uh, Dow Jones average. They, uh, they dropped below the line. How, how sad for them to only have $999 million instead of $1.4 billion. Must really hurt. But see, we don't know, none of us know what that's like to have that kind of money. We're perfectly happy. Understand my analogy? The believer that's down here that's a loser is going to have happiness. He's going to be in heaven. No more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain. The old things are passed away. But he is not going to have the quality of life that the mature believer has because the mature believer was laying up riches in heaven rather than focusing on immediate gratification here on earth. This believer put doctrine first, day in and day out. God was his number one priority, and learning everything he could about the Lord and applying it was his number one priority. I really hate how they have trivialized this in recent years with this, this witness where uh, stuff where we want to reduce God to some quick saying, put it on a bumper sticker on a t-shirt. But the, this, this believer kept going through life and thinking, okay, How would Jesus respond in this situation? How am I to respond in this situation? That's my priority is to be like Jesus Christ. This believer, the the, uh, failure believer, 
He could care less what Jesus had to say because he, he didn't have a clue. He never spent any time in Bible class, never learned any doctrine. He was just out there to have a good time and to try to solve his problems his own way. So this believer, the mature believer, is the believer who receives the crown of life. He is the believer who endured testing. That's what Revelation 2.10 is telling us. These were put in prison to be tested. That's the subject of James 1. And what does testing produce? If you exercise persistence and endurance, it produces maturity. Maturity equals capacity for life and happiness. Keep on being faithful. That's a synonym for persistence. Even until death. And I will give you the crown of life. So this is another reward to the mature believer is a quality of life in heaven. Many, many tests that we go through in life that believers have gone through over the ages have involved persecution and even martyrdom. And that was true of many of the apostles. James was beheaded in Jerusalem in 44 A.D. This sort of tells you, you always wonder what happened to the apostles after the closing, after after Acts, because we don't hear about much of them. James was beheaded in Jerusalem in A.D. 44. Philip was cruelly whipped prior to being crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword in Parthia around A.D. 60. James the Lesser was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, which is about four or five hundred feet, five hundred foot drop down to uh, just a rocky boulders at the base. Uh, and when, when he hit the ground, they stoned him and beat him to death. What was left? Andrew was crucified on a cross for three days and he witnessed to everyone who came by to look at him. Peter was first whipped and then he was crucified upside down because he did not think he was worthy to be crucified right side up as the Lord was. Thomas was thrust thrust through with a spear in India. Jude was crucified in A.D. 72. Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs. John was condemned to a cauldron of boiling oil, though he escaped death and later died in, he later died in exile on the island of Patmos. He's the only one I know of who died a natural death. Paul was beheaded by, in Rome by Nero. Some others, Barnabas was stoned to death by Jews in Thessalonica. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria by his feet, then burned to death the following day. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. And Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. So many believers down through the ages have been uh, executed or tortured for their faith. One of my favorite stories is the story of Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was the um, archbishop under Henry VIII and then I think under under Edward and when Mary Tudor took... uh, took the throne in England during the, the, as they were struggling with the Protestant Reformation, there was a tremendous persecution of all the Protestants. And you, were, you would be burned at the stake for your views of the Lord's table, transubstantiation or memorial. And you had to understand all those issues. So everybody in the streets understood all the theological issues related to how you viewed the Lord's table, whether it was a mass where Jesus was continually being crucified or not. And 
uh, within the first month of, of Mary's reign, that's why she's called Bloody Mary, is 300 Protestants were burned at the stake on the fields of Smithfield. So there was tremendous persecution of Protestants, including Cranmer. And Cranmer was tortured on the rack, and he finally gave up. He, they said he would live if he would just recant his Protestant conviction. So he signed the recantation, and then they, they showed their true uh, moral character, and they were going to burn him at the stake anyway. So he recanted of his, of his recantation, and while he was on the stake burning, he held his hand out in the flames and cursed it because it had signed a recantation of the true gospel, and he held it there until his arm burned off, and the entire time he sang hymns in praise of God. Just phenomenal what the grace of God can do in dying grace. So we look at the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. The third crown is the crown of glory. The crown of glory. This is found in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. So he's talking to pastors here. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those who allotted to your charge, those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the crown of glory is for pastors who are faithful in executing their spiritual gift in teaching their sheep sound doctrine so they may grow. And then the fourth is the winner's crown. The winner's crown. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 to 27. Let me read that to you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here he uses the analogy of the winner's crown, that this is for the believer who is to advance to, to spiritual maturity, and because of that he will receive the winner's crown for his spiritual growth. So James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved. That's the key word. We didn't go over it in 1 Corinthians 3. That's the purpose for the evaluation trial is approval. Our evaluation to show what is there, the positive that is there. It's not designed to reveal the wood, hay, and straw. The Lord's not going to be there to focus on all your human good and all your failures. The focus is on the, wood, on the gold, silver, and precious stones. What is approval? 
For the one who is approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We'll pick up with verse 13 in two weeks. There will not be a Bible class next Wednesday night. I appreciate your prayers. I'm going to be speaking at a pastor's conference in Memphis, Tennessee next uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. should be interesting. Uh, this is a this sort of came up suddenly because the man who was supposed to speak died of a heart attack a couple of months ago, and one of my former students um, said I could fill his shoes fairly quickly. So a group of black, very conservative black pastors who've been going to this conference for about eight or nine years, and I'm going to get the opportunity to teach them a lot of principles on how to move from Greek exegesis to teaching from the pulpit, and really challenge these men how to use the Word of God to go beyond just sort of superficial sort of uh, sermonizing. A lot of these men don't have any formal training, and that's one of the purposes this conference was put together is to come in and teach them just rudimentary skills so that they can do some basic word studies, look a Greek word up in some basic commentaries, understand some basic things on grammar, uh, what a noun is, what a verb is, just basic English grammar to begin with. And then uh, I'll be taking a number of passages and we'll just be going through those to exegete. And one of the main chapters that they use, for the, that each year they pick a different chapter for this conference and they work through it. And the chapter for this particular conference this year is James 1. So I didn't think that I had a whole lot of preparation to do. So I would appreciate your prayers for that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, and we do pray that, that we would have a, a vision for advancing to spiritual maturity, to pursue the high ground, to pursue the winner's circle, to pursue the crown of victory, that we may see the, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the, the winner's crown, because we have been persistent, we have endured through the midst of trials, we have been faithful in applying doctrine in our lives, no matter what the circumstances. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.